Okay, everyone's found Revelation 2, okay? Okay, why don't we stand and read the Word of God? To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this, I know your deeds and your toil and your perseverance, and that you cannot tolerate evil men, and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you found them to be false, and you have perseverance and have endured for my namesake, and have not grown weary, but I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you have fallen, and repent, and do the deeds you did at first, or else I'm coming to you and remove your lampstand out of its place, unless you repent. Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit has to say to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Please be seated. Well, good morning, and I hope you're looking forward to our time in Revelation this morning. Before I begin the sermon, though, I want to share something exciting with you, and I'm calling on all the artists in the church. If you have any creative spirit in you with clay or painting or drawing, this is, your, this is a charge to you. One of the cool things I see in Revelation are visions. Visions. We saw one last week where this one like a son of man was standing in the lampstand and he was clothed with a robe uh, to his feet. He had hair white like wool. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like bronze and so on. In Revelation 6, we see the four horsemen. One's red, one's white, one's black, one's ashen, like pale. There's tons of visions. Here's what I'd like you to do because Revelation calls on your imagination. If, if, if Psalms calls to like an emotional response, from your heart, and, and, and uh, Romans call, calls to your intellect. Revelation calls to your imagination. And so I would like for us as a church for, to render, as the time goes on between now to probably the end of June, which will, that's how long it will take to finish this letter, I'd like to call on all the visions and all the artists to try to collaborate what you think is being portrayed in these words. What I'd like to do then is make it into a calendar for the 2000, like, so maybe, let's say we got done in July, we'd, we'd go to some place like Canva or something like that, and we'd make a calendar for the rest of the months of 2022, and then we'd make a calendar for 2023. And then all of Genesis House's drawings of these visions will become the calendar by which our church could have something. So to someone like me, it doesn't maybe give me that huge excitement. If it was about music, yeah, maybe. But you artists, maybe your heart's a little excited right now about the potential to, uh, to do something like this. And so, Aliyah, I expect you to draw the four horsemen for me when uh, we get there, out of whatever God reveals to you in your mind about what these visions look like. So anyway, hopefully that'll excite you. And that'll, again, we'll, you can start those visions right away, those drawings. But I would recommend maybe you wait till I preach on them because as my words speak to you, uh, maybe something greater comes out of those images for you. Okay, that's enough of uh, waggling on the T, trying to get my drive perfect. I'm going to move on to the sermon. So as you can tell by our reading this morning, uh, we are beginning um, our journey in the seven churches, specifically Jesus' instruction to them. And we're beginning with the church of Ephesus, where I've titled the sermon, Love Changes Everything. Any of you, those who listened to Honeymoon Suite back in the day or know what I'm talking about. But uh, before we get going, though, I want to make two points by way of introduction. First of all, I want you to notice that in every letter that Jesus writes, whether it's to, an in, to the individual church, he ends with instructions with an identical charge by addressing the churches in plural. So he says to the church in Ephesus. However, look at verse 7. He says, he who has a near let him hear what the Spirit has to say to the churches, plural. <clears throat> the next one in uh, Smyrna, in verse 8, 
he, an angel writes to the church in Smyrna, singular. But in verse 11, he says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, plural. Now, what this tells us is, is that the Lord's intention was that the message that was spoken to an individual church was going to be meant to be heard by the other churches in Asia as well. In other words, they're going to get a spiritual report card. And Jesus wants everybody in the region to hear about it. So it's not gossip because it's going to be made public. And so what happens in Ephesus and the warnings and, and the rewards that are going to be given and the commendations and the, and the rebukes, all those things are going to be heard in Smyrna and Pergamum and Laodicea and vice versa. So he wants the churches there to take heed to what's being said because maybe later on, even though they're not struggling in this area, they may struggle in that area in the future or be tempted to go down a path that God's not pleased with. At the same time, he hears what God's pleased about and maybe they could up their game in seeking to be loyal to him. Now, I bring this up because we need to, as individuals in Genesis House, then ask the Holy Spirit to seek our hearts and our minds as we listen to this message. It's for the churches, Genesis House included. So maybe as you reflect on this, we think corporately about where we're at. But more importantly, well, not more importantly, equally importantly, you uh, reflect as to where you are at personally as Jesus speaks to you. It might be a time of repentance, or also it might be a time of encouragement as you realize that you're in line with the things that Jesus cares about. The second thing I want to say by the word of introduction is that I've, I've made it easier for us, I believe, by coming up with an outline for the sermon. So look at your sheet. <clears throat> you can take notes, and I'm going to break it up into these sections. We're going to speak about the church in the city. We're going to speak about the correspondent. The correspondent is a fancy word for saying the person who writes a letter or a report. So if you're a journalist, you're a, cor you're a correspondent. If you're a news anchor, you're a correspondent. Uh, the commendation, in other words, words of praise. The concern, the words of rebuke. The command, what to do in response to the Jesus's concern and the potential consequences that are in play for disobeying, and the call to conquer. It's the admonition to listen and to, and to overcome the obstacles, knowing there's a promise of reward. So every, every sermon for the seven churches is going to be breaking down into these categories to make it easy for you to understand. So let's first talk about the church in the city. In verse 1, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write, now, just to help you uh, remember this, Ephesus is in modern-day Turkey. To the, in the yellow, that's modern-day Turkey called Asia Minor. You'll see Ephesus on the bottom left-hand corner, and you'll notice it's a port city. To the left of it is like, you know, the continent of Greece and whatnot to give you some geographical understanding, and they're in the midst of the Mediterranean Sea. But Ephesus is a port city, but like all port cities, uh, they're a center for trade. If you're a port city, you're known for commercialism, right? You're a center for trade both by land and by sea. And as a result of its location then, it was a principal city in Asia. It was a major commercial hub for the entire region and the world. If I were to give a modern day example in Canada of how to think about this, I'd think of what Vancouver is to BC. There's lots of cities around it, there's lots of towns, but Vancouver is the commercial hub and you see ships and whatnot in the, in the harbors all the time, and there's lots of trade by land as well. But what a, what a, one of the most important features about Ephesus was that actually it was home to what was known as one of the seven wonders of the world at that time, the Temple of Diana. The Greeks called this temple the Temple of Artemis. And according to the commentaries I read, uh, and the ancient literature they quoted in relation to this temple, it was apparently absolutely spectacular in, in that world. It was really a sight to see, and it drew people from all over the world to come and worship there. As a result then, Ephesus wasn't only a principal city for commercialism and trade, it was a principal city for idolatry. <laughs> it was steeped in the occult, and there was huge profits to be made off of the occult there and, temple, and the temple worship. Now, you can look this up later yourself, but in Acts 19 and verse 20, there's a really amazing scene there. The spread of Christianity is threatening 
uh, I, the idolatrous practices of Ephesus. And there's some silversmiths there who are local businessmen. And they, are, they make idols of Diana to sell to people who come to Ephesus for worship. Uh, not only the, to those who come, but the locals. And so what happens is, um, uh, these, uh, with the spread of Christianity, um, these businessmen start, uh, start to have reduction in sales because people are like starting slowly getting rid of all their stuff. But what's amazing is when, when they come there, these local mediums and magic arts uh, performers and whatnot, they, they, they start to burn their books in the streets. They burn their books in the streets. And in today's dollar, I did the calculations from what it was worth then to what it is worth now. It was close to $15 million in today's currency. In the city of Ephesus, which was smaller than Calgary, had $15 million in today's standards just in books of magic arts and the occult. So you want to talk about being steeped in something, that's what Ephesus was. But of all the seven churches, hands down, we know the most about Ephesus in terms of what the Bible records. So in the early 50s, uh, we see it being established. Uh, the, first, the, the, the time that the gospel is first introduced comes through primarily through a husband and wife team by Priscilla and Aquila. Uh, they leave their home in Corinth, and they come with Paul as he's passing on the second missionary journey through Corinth. Uh, they come with him to Ephesus. And Paul leaves them there and goes on in more journeys. But later, Priscilla and Aquila are joined by a man named Apollos. And this Apollos is a guy who's mighty in the scriptures. That's the definition of him in, this, in, in, the, um, in, in the Bible. He's mighty in the scriptures and he can debate people and, and confound them. But this, so the church probably got started with this small band of believers. But the gospel really took off in Ephesus when Paul returned on his third missionary journey. Now, Paul spent three years in Ephesus, which is longer than any other church plant in the Bible. Three years is hands down the longest he spent in any city uh, in the Bible in terms of church planning. And Paul took really two important steps to get the church going there. In Acts 20.20, 20, it says this, Paul taught publicly and from house to house. So Paul was busy. He was bringing the gospel to the streets, streets of Ephesus, in which signs and miracles and, and uh, wonders were accompanying his preaching, leading people to Christ. But he was also doing it privately from house to house. So he was a hard worker in this. But even, even uh, just as important, if not more important, was a school he set up in Acts 19 by the name of Tyrannus, the school of Tyrannus. Now, this is like a seminary. Think of it like a seminary. But people would, could come there, the Christians could come there and learn daily from Paul for two years. Could you imagine that? Like, imagine having Paul as your pastor, and you get to meet him every single day for two years in the school of Tyrannus. You'd learn more in those two years than in your entire life in this church. I, you could you'd trade me in like a bad habit, and it, I'd have no problem with it because I'd know who your teacher was. But two years actively teaching. Now, here's what's amazing about that. No doubt, this is where the establishment of the elders came from that led to the church's stability when Paul left. Elders would have been people would have been trained and become elders in that situation. The elders that we see in Timothy dealing with false teachers. But, more, but just as cool, Ephesus, it looks like, from, if I'm reading the scriptures right, became the training grounds for church planting. Ephesus was the center for church planting. This is a really neat verse in Acts 19. Speaking of the school of Tyrannus, this school went on for two years so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. So back to our map, where are the seven churches located? In Asia. So those churches weren't established yet. They get established after Ephesus. So no doubt the school of Tyrannus was training people for, for, for ministry and for sharing the word of God. And they went out and hence the, the development of these other six churches in Asia Minor. So they, the Ephesus founded the other six. And as I got thinking about that application wise, it was kind of exciting. I thought, you know what? May that be said of us. I've already, I've already told you here, Genesis House's goal is not to be a church of 150 or 200, 
Genesis' goal would be more like to have three churches of 50 or four churches of 200. Why? Because the one pastor can shepherd 50 individuals properly. <laughs> he can go house to house, meeting people on their needs. And then once in a while, he can corporately gather for a giant shindig, if you want to call it, and have a great worship time. But to effectively disciple people, a pastor can only, and an elder can only handle so many people. So we want to be church planters, but we need a training grounds for these men to be able to go out and do this. But the church in Ephesus wasn't without trials. I mentioned this earlier, just briefly, but when the gospel came to Ephesus, there was major threats on their, uh, uh, to the occult and the practice of worshiping Diana. And much profit had to be made with the presence of the temple. And so when these silversmiths, who were seeing a reduction in their sales, saw what was happening, they caused a riot in the streets. And it eventually forced Paul to leave Ephesus after three years. He could no longer stay there um, just because um, it was too dangerous for him. But again, because the elders were established and whatnot, the church was able to thrive. But there wasn't just external threats. We know later on there was internal threats as well. Later in Acts, Paul travels close to Ephesus, a place called Miletus, and he gathers the elders there of Ephesus. He says, come see me. And they come see him. And in Acts 20, he says, you know what? I want you to be aware of something. False teachers are going to come into your presence and disturb the flock of God. I'm telling you now so that you're prepared for in the future. Well, we see this fulfilled. Remember we taught Timothy in this church? That Timothy was written in the early 60s. Paul's established in the church in Ephesus in the early 50s. So 10 years later, we see Timothy fighting against the false teachers. Now, what's cool is by in Revelation, we're coming to this in a second, they obviously had victory because Paul commends them that they're able to stand up against the false teaching. So that's a really cool thing to think about Ephesus. So by the time Revelation was written then, Ephesus had been around for approximately 40 years, 40 years in existence. And Jesus had a message for them, the correspondent. Look at 1B. He says, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this. Now, this, this language will be familiar to you. We saw this imagery in chapter 1, when John received his vision about who Jesus was. Remember, if you look at verse 16, it says, in his right hand, he held seven stars. And the seven stars are what? According to verse 20, angels. So he's saying here, to the one who holds the angels in his right hand. The one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, we know this to be what this means in verse 13, because Jesus in the, is in the midst of the lampstands, which verse 20 defines as the church. So he's saying here, Jesus has authority over the angels. He's the one in authority over the angels in the heavenly realms. But he's also who's overseeing your church, or your kind of like your guardian angel, but he's also one who stands in your midst. So this same, so Jesus is not to be seen as a distant observer. He's to be seen as someone intimately aware of what is going on. So this is, this is his way of calling the Ephesians to, his, to attention. He's saying, listen guys, nothing escapes my notice. I have authority over those in the heavenly realm that are overseeing you, but I have authority here on earth in the midst of your church as well. Now, these words could have been both comforting and unsettling. <laughs> comforting if they're walking in loyalty, unsettling if they weren't. And I start to think that for us as well in Genesis House. Well, how do we feel about knowing that Jesus has authority in the heavens and on earth and sees exactly what's going on in Genesis House? He knows what's happening here corporately, but he also knows everything that's going on in your personal life. Areas of loyalty, areas of disloyalty. And so he has words to say to us. So let's look at the commendation. He starts off with praise in verses two through two and three in verse six. In verse two, he says this, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance and that you cannot tolerate evil men and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not, and you found them to be false, and you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake, 
and have not grown weary. A secondary commendation occurs in verse 6. Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. The first thing that Paul commends them on is their toil. In other words, he commends them on being a hard-working church. What began with Paul and Priscilla and Aquila and Apollos and these early sort of investors in Ephesus had still been going on amongst the Ephesians that day. Since their establishment 40 years earlier and the establishment of church plants and how they'd worked hard at proclaiming truth and spreading the word of God, Jesus was in favor of what they continued to do. They obviously had worked hard at preaching and teaching and discipling the church in Ephesus. So he commends them for that. And he also says, I also know about your perseverance. He was commending about that as well, a praiseworthy item to be one known as someone who's willing to endure hardship. If you persevere in something, you have a, a fortitude about yourself in which you'll endure struggle and trial. Well, clearly the Ephesians were known for that. Uh, Jewish synagogues that stood in opposition to them, they obviously endured against. The Roman Empire that had been coming down hard on them, obviously, uh, for the most part, they had been able to stand against that and do well. They had been, for, as a general rule, had not shrunken back. He actually says, you've not grown weary. You've not grown weary from persevering. You've actually been very loyal. And finally, he says, uh, he's praiseworthy of the fact that they did not tolerate uh, false teaching. They did not tolerate it. He says, you cannot tolerate evil men, and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not and you found them to be false. Now, I mentioned this earlier in the introduction, but it's worth looking at this verse now. This is what Paul actually said to the Ephesians uh, about uh, 30, 30 to 35 years earlier. He said, keep watch over yourselves and of the flock which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. From your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. Again, we fast forward now, like, you know, 30, 35 years, and all of a sudden we see or the Ephesians had been able to withstand the warnings that Paul had done or given them. It tells you the dedication of the elders, right? In our society, tolerance is so important. Tolerance. Well, the elders in Ephesus were intolerant. <laughs> they were an intolerant bunch, and God, Jesus praised them for it. He praised them for it. When I decided to go to seminary, you know, I took my time carefully choosing where I was going to go to school because I know that tolerance of error has put the church in jeopardy now. The church in North America has some phenomenal places that still uphold God's word, but many have lost the gospel message, and, and especially the way to live out the gospel in practical days, uh, yeah, practically in how you live out that in your life. You know, I knew that I couldn't just trust that the professors, just because they had a degree and a PhD and had studied the Bible intensively, would know morally, for example, how to live out that life and how doctrinally salvation was still accomplished. And so again, the choice had to be very well thought out, knowing that nothing's new under the sun, and the false teaching back then is the same as it can be today. But the Ephesians stood their ground. So one of the things I said earlier is we have to examine our own heart. How have we corporately or individually done in the area of toiling, working hard for the sake of the gospel? How about in the area of persevering and enduring under trial? How about in the area of being loyal to the truth of God? I know for me, in these three, the most challenging by far is my willingness to persevere and endure. Loyalty to the truth, that doesn't, I don't stress too hard about that. Working hard, don't stress too hard about that. Enduring, though, through trial and not giving up and having the fortitude to stick it out with Jesus Christ thick and thin, through thick and thin, that's a lot more difficult for me, especially in the last little while. 
But again, these are applicable words to us from Jesus Christ to the Ephesians and applicable words to us as well. But one other area of commendation was verse 6. Yet this you do have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So who were these people? We don't know here because nothing's said of them. But we do get a hint in chapter 2, verse 14. Read that with me. 2.14. He says to the church in Pergamum, I have a few things against you because you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who keep teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit acts of immorality. So you also have some in the same way who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. So there's some of you in the same way hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans, the same teaching as Balaam in regards to Balak. Now, I'm not going to do a huge thing on this right now because I'm going to deal with that uh, when we get there in more detail. So let me give you the Coles Notes versions of what happened in Bala with Balak and Balaam. Israel was making quick work of the enemy nations, and this king of Moab named Balak was nervous about Israel's proximity to them. And so he hires, he, he wants to hire Balaam, who, who is a prophet of Israel, to curse Israel. Balaam won't do it. He won't do it for any money in the world. He, he just says, you can give me all the gold and silver in the world. I can't speak against God. But then Balaam comes up with another strategy to try to reduce Israel's influence and make them friends, make them friends as opposed to enemies. Balaam's idea, and you can pick this up in Numbers 31, is that the Moabite women are to seduce the Hebrew men, leading them into worshiping their gods, which would then create unity between the two nations. And Israel fell for it. They fell for it. So the Nicolaitans then are similar. They must have been seducing people within the, the Ephesian church to that it's okay to participate in certain idolatrous practices of the Roman Empire and still be good with God. They must have been saying, you know what, you can be a Christian and you can be a Christian and you can worship this and you can be a Christian and partake in that and you can be a Christian and you can live in this particular way. That must be the, the correlation that's going on with the Nicolaitans. And he says to the Ephesians, you hate that stuff. You taught, you taught solidarity against worship of the one true God and how you live that, that life out. You were not syncretistic in the way you lived the Christian life. That's what the Ephesians were known for. How about the concern, though? Not everything's great in, in, a, in Ephesus. Look at verse 4. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. I have this against you, that you've left your first love. The age-old question that everyone wants to know is, what does John mean by that? Well, it's difficult because there's no explanation. But there's three interpretations that are possible. One, he means you've lost your love for Jesus. You've, or you've lost your love for others within the church. Or perhaps you've lost your love for those outside the church. Others that I've read think that it's a combination of, of all three. Some think it's a combination of two. But maybe it's good that he left it ambiguous so that we just think in the category of love generally. <laughs> and since we don't know, we can't be too dogmatic about it and make absolute statements about what John means. But here's the point. The current state of the church in Ephesus had backslidden from its original beginnings decades earlier. How do we know this? Because of what was written to the Ephesians by Paul in the early uh, 60s. Listen to this in the, in, uh, from Paul. <clears throat> Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15. For this reason too, I have heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus which exists among you and your love for all the saints. Do not cease giving thanks for you while making mention of you in my prayers. Now there's some debate as to whether all the saints means the entire church, Jews and Gentiles, or if the saints is a reference to only Jewish Christians. This, I need to let me make you aware of that because the saints is another euphemism for Jewish Christians. Regardless, there's love in the church. Regardless, there's love in the church. Consider the, the closing of the letter in, in Ephesians 6, 23. P 
Peace to the brothers and sisters in love with faith from God and Father, Lord Jesus Christ. Grace to all who love our Lord Jesus Christ with an undying love. Again, this is probably a general call to all the churches, like great, you know, to the, like you know, not just Ephesians, but the Ephesians are part of this in terms of their thoughts. So again, we see that Ephesians have got some kind of a love in their church that's commendable. Now, not everything was perfect. In chapter four, we have to be honest to the text. Paul wrote to them in chapter four and says, "You need to put away falsehood and start speaking, speaking truth." You need to watch out you don't get angry. You do not let the sun go down in your anger. And you need to use language that's edifying, that builds up and does not tear down. So again, there's, there's a, you know, they're doing well, but it's not perfect. But what's amazing is 10 years later, when the letter to Timothy is written, which is written to the church in Ephesus, there's no mention of their failure to succeed in love. The only thing Paul deals with with Timothy is the false doctrine in the church. So for, for all intents and purposes, then, we can say that the Ephesians were doing pretty well. And that's obvious, too, by our own verses. He says, remember from where you have fallen, in verse 5, when we get there, and go do the deeds you did at first. So the, the Ephesian church, like there might be some believers from the original church 40 years ago they are still there. There might be a Christian of one year who's in that congregation. It doesn't matter. Everyone's aware of how the Ephesians have been known for their love. And they used to live this way, and now they're not. They're not. Now, how in the world did this happen? How in the world did this happen? Well, we don't know. But can I give you a suggestion? That's only a suggestion. But if it's true, this is a fascinating application and lesson to us. We know the church in Ephesus fought tooth and nail to keep the church doctrinally pure. We know that. We've just studied that. And we know they were successful in upholding the Bible and keeping the church theologically sound. Perhaps their efforts in making sure every T was crossed and I was dotted in Scripture came at a high cost. All of their energy went into making the Bible so relevant and so important in teaching that they forgot how to love. <laughs> they forgot how to love. And so they became complacent, whether it be in their love for God or in their love for others or, love, or whatever. They became complacent. And here's why that's important. They lost sight of the most important virtue that marked what it was to be a Christian. Love. And in 1 John, it says God is love. That's not what he does. That's who he is. Jesus' love was demonstrated by self-sacrificing the cross. So whoever believes in him would receive forgiveness of sin. He laid his life down for others. That's what love was. And these people probably in Ephesus, had failed to be self-sacrificial towards others and to the Lord. They became complacent in their faith. This spoke to me, if I'm right on this, because you know why? Genesis House is very much like Ephesus. <laughs> If you're new to the church, you probably can tell that we love this book already. By the way we like talk about it and the way we try to expound on it, right? We have to be careful as to, to what cost we uphold the scriptures. Yes, we're, you can be commended for fighting against un, uh, false doctrine. You can be, and God actually approves of that. But if it's at the cost of love, you're missing something huge. And I love this. Dan and I spend hours on the phone every week now because uh, Revelation is such a difficult book. And uh, I, we probably average five, six hours a week on the phone. Just, I learned this, I learned this, and yeah, but this, and fighting against each other and whatever, debating. And he mentioned this, and it was so good. He goes, you know, Andrew, in 1 Corinthians 13, you, you, you know that passage, hey? And I'm like, yeah. And I'll remind you of it, church, because we actually preached on this uh, a few months ago. Remember what love is? Okay, so, so the, uh, the problem in, uh, with Corinth is uh, 
They think that speaking in tongues and, and the evidence of spiritual gifts makes you a spiritual person. They think that because you have the spiritual gifts that you're holy and acceptable to God. And this is what Paul says, if I speak in tongues of men or of angels but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have a faith that can move mountains but do not have love, I'm nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. You know what Dan said? It was really good. He goes, we can add one more thing. This is our version of the Bible. If I have perfect doctrine and I'm unprecedentedly theologically sound, but do not have love, I am nothing. Food for thought. So the lesson to us is clear, church. We have to watch out for complacency, especially for those of us who've been following Christ for a long time. It's easy to get into coast mode. Oh, you know, when I was younger, I did all that service, and I cared for so-and-so, and I did this, and I did that. Well, I'm just going to stop, because it's up to the younger generation to step it up. No! The Bible says older men, younger, uh, older women, train younger men and younger women to do certain things. Keep persevering and toiling for the sake of love. Again, we also have to watch out for selfishness. The exact opposite of self-sacrificial love is self-centeredness and selfishness. We need, we need to be able to make the time and energy and use our gifts for the service of other people. That's what Jesus is looking for because he laid down his life for us in service. That's why in the night before his crucifixion, he was washing feet. He says, and I love these words, he says, do you know what I've done to you, not for you? Do you, do you know what I've done to you? I'm teaching you about what it is to be a leader to the disciples. You lead by example by serving others. So how serious was he about this? How serious was he? Well, let's look at the command in verse 5. Therefore, remember where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. What's the lampstand represent again in this Revelation chapter 1? The church. Jesus says this, If you do not turn this around, Ephesus, and remember where you have fallen, and start loving the way you did in the past, I'm going to bring divine judgment upon you and put an end to your church. There's no other way to read that. I'm going to remove it. The, the, the church is a light in this world. He says, if you don't return to love and start loving the way I'm commanding to you, I'm taking you, the light out of this world. Now, there's some debate as to what this means. Does he mean put an end to the church physically, like with an earthquake or something? Well, I mean, this is speculation, but we know this definitely that they'll be powerless, that they won't have the Spirit of God present among them, and they'll be spiritually insignificant in society. Without the presence of the Holy Spirit there, your church has got nothing to offer the world. Without Jesus amongst you, your church is powerless, has no effect. You can gather all you want and sing all the songs you want without God's presence. It ain't going anywhere. Now, this is an incredible statement for two different reasons that I could see in the text. Number one, don't forget this. Nowhere in these verses does Jesus declare the Ephesians not to be genuine Christians at this point. In chapter 1, verse 1, read this with me. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave to him to show his bondservants. The churches that he's writing to are called bondservants, slaves of Jesus. Look in verse 9. I, John, your brother and fellow partaker in the tribulation, because of the word of God and testimony of Jesus. He's a fellow partaker. John's lumping himself in with these Christians in terms of who they are and who their identity is. So again, 
he's not declaring these Ephesians not to be Christians at this point or not genuine believers. However, however, if they stay the same and they continue in the spiritual pattern that has been embraced, Christ will remove them. Now that's incredible to think about because this is a church that has labored in the gospel, persevered through trials, upheld scripture with the utmost reverence, yet because of their lack of love, Jesus says, I'm going to remove you from being a light in this world. But this also speaks to the immensity of God's grace. The immensity. Why do I say that? Well, because he's watched this this didn't start like on us, like, you know, like a go to bed on Sunday, perfectly loving, waking up on a Monday and, and be poor. This was a, probably a slow, a pervasive thing that trickled into the church and became their pattern over time. And yet Jesus in his mercy and his grace was slow to bring this word to them. Like he, he took his, like he waited to give it to John to talk to these churches. He didn't remove them yet. He was gracious, and his grace held these believers intact. It was only his merits of his grace that held them intact. And so God was not to be seen as some kind of hammer looking to drop, the, drop it on them, but he was patient and merciful. So the Ephesians then were to recognize God's grace, but not to presume on it. And this reminded me of Romans 6. Because Paul's teaching in Romans to the church there, he says, uh, um, I'm going to contrast God's grace and the law of Moses. So there's debate in that church. Do you, do you get right with God by following the law of Moses? And he debunks that. And so the Christians listening to that go, well, if I don't get right with God by following the law of Moses, how do I get right with God? And Paul says, by God's grace, his unmerited mercy by dying on the cross for you. All you have to do is believe in that message. So then the, the, the church asks a really good question. Well, if I'm not saved by works of the law and I'm saved by grace, then I, I'm free to keep on sinning. Because if it's by grace and not by how I live, what difference does it make? And Jesus and Paul says, may it never be. You've missed the gospel if you think you can keep on sinning because you're saved by grace. He says, you continue to honor the Lord with your life because you were saved by grace. It's your love expression back to God for what he's done for you. And so the Ephesians right now, as they stood, were genuine believers. But there was a warning. If you consist in this pattern of, of, of a spiritual decline, I am coming and I'm removing you from your influence. Some of you might be thinking, well, what does that still mean? And we're going to come to this in verse 7. The call to conquer. Let's read this together. Actually, verse 6. So, sorry, verse 7. The call to conquer. He then says this to them, knowing that there's this praise, but there's also a stern warning. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. We need to examine two things here. First of all, what does it mean to overcome? And what does it mean in reference to the tree of life? Well, to overcome, I think, is pretty clear from the text. He says in verse 4, or verse 5, Remember where you have fallen, and repent and do the deeds you did at first. So for them to overcome, they have to return to the way of love that they were loving before. Nothing extra, actually. He doesn't say, do what you did before and some. He just says, go back to the way you used to be in terms of love, for, probably for God and others and etc. Just return to it. So to overcome is to stop what they're doing and go back to what they used to do. He says, if you do this, I will grant you to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Where is he going with his language? Back to the Old Testament. What did the tree of life represent in Genesis? The tree of life represented a perfect relationship with the divine heavenly father, with no curse, no sin, full access to his presence. Sin wasn't in the world. God hadn't judged the world in any way. It was 
being in, on, on, in, in the unmerited relationship with God the Father, with no hindrances, no sin, no curse. Eternal life. Because you, you don't, you sin, you die because you sin. Adam and Eve would have lived forever if they hadn't sinned. So it represents eternal life. Let's see if, uh, well, let's not, let's see. Let me show you something really amazing in Revelation in chapter 22. Turn there with me right now. Because John speaks to the tree of life now in Revelation, and we need to compare that to the Old Testament. Look at verses 1 through 4 with me. Revelation 22. Then he showed me the river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. In the middle of its street, on either side of the river, was the tree of life. Same one as in chapter 2. Bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month, and the leaves of the tree were there for the healing of the nations. There was no longer any curse. Back to the Garden of Eden. And the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it. Back to the Garden of Eden. And his bondservants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. Now, here's what's important. The tree of life in chapter 22 represents perfect the new heavens and the new earth. Unmerited access to God, unmerited presence with God. In chapter 21, he introduces the new heaven and earth once again, just before it. And we have to look at this. In 21, then I saw a new heavens and a new earth for the first heaven and the first passed away. And there is no longer any sea. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of the heaven from God, made ready as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God's amongst men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will, wipe them, will uh, be among them, and he will wipe every tear from their eyes, and there will be no longer any death, there will be no longer any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. Now here's the bomb verse. Look at verse 7. He who overcomes will inherit these things. He who overcomes inherits what things? The promises of verses 1 through 4. Free from the curse, free from pain, free from sin, free from all these things. Do you understand what now what John is saying? He says, listen, Ephesus, if you do not overcome and go back to the way you used to be, you will not inherit eternal life. You won't inherit it. If you go back to what you used to do and you repent and you overcome, you will eat from the tree of life. In other words, you will inherit eternal life. The Ephesians have a pretty serious decision to make in terms of which way they're going to go in terms of their loyalty to Jesus Christ. So what can we learn from the text? Lesson one. Without the practice of genuine Christian love, the way Jesus intended, even a church known for sound biblical teaching and an intolerance for heresy stands on the brink of Christ's judgment. That's absolutely clear from the text. Verse 5. Well, the whole thing. If you're not known as a church of love, you can be as biblically sound as you want. You stand on the verge of Christ taking your church out, snuffing you out as a light. That's really important. Number two, without persevering in genuine Christian love, even a church that has a, has a history of being known for practicing love the way Jesus intended stands at the brink of Christ's judgment. Ephesus in Paul's day was, was, was known more for love than anything else. Or they had love, there was some, well, let, me, let me phrase that. They had love in their church, but there were some struggles, but Jesus still defined them as a church of love. So they had a history of that. And then he says to them here, return to the deeds that you used to do. So they had a history of it, but now they've stopped. So he says, you must persevere in these things, otherwise you too stand on the brink of judgment. Lesson three. This is, I love this one, probably my favorite verse though, or favorite lesson. The grace of Jesus may cover a church when they are no longer practicing love, but the church is not to presume upon it recognizing that such grace will not continue unless they repent. 
So if you're in a practice of sin in the area of love, God is merciful. God is merciful, and he's slow, and he's patient to bring judgment. I can't think, I just, this just came to my head now, so I'll say it. Um, when, when, when in Noah's day, when he went to, to and said, I'm going to judge the world for, for their violence and their wickedness, and he says, nevertheless, nevertheless, man will not strive for, forever, but nevertheless, I'll give them 120 years. People think that's referring to how old he's going to let people live for, 120 max. That's not what he's saying. He's saying, nevertheless, I'm going to wait 120 years before I bring judgment to the earth. So God says to Noah, I'm going to bring judgment, but I'm going to wait a century before I do it. Because he's slow and merciful and long-suffering and wants a big family. So he knows what's going on in the church, but he doesn't go into Ephesus on day one and give them the hammer. He waits. He's patient. He's gracious. That's what's what's withholding the church in this place. But they're not to presume on it, knowing that repentance is necessary to remove judgment from them. And finally, the promise of eternal life is given to believers who persevere in practicing love the way Jesus intended. Perseverance in love, always seeking to honor the Lord and others with the way we live, in self-sacrifice towards him and self-sacrifice to other people. Now, I want you to notice one word I've used over and over, the word practice. Some of you might be thinking, are you a church that teaches that uh, once I sin once, I'm out with God? Not a chance. Not a chance. I hope you just heard the 120 years thing with Noah (laughs) and uh, how God's grace covered this church. But here's what's clear in the text. If you practice it, if you make that your, your, the way of, a way of life, then we stand in, at the brink of judgment. But God doesn't want that. That's why he's warning us here today that if, you're, if we're not loving the way he intended to get back to it, we're still genuine believers now, but we're being maintained by his grace. But he's now given us a warning, so now we have to listen. And he wants us to, go, to be self-sacrificial in every aspect of our life. Father, we give you thanks for your word, and we, we know this has been a challenging message. We pray, Lord, as your spirit uh, continues to work in us, that we see things um, maybe afresh and anew, and um, help us to understand what your letter was really saying to the Ephesian church, because it is fully applicable to us, especially as a church who values the Bible and tends to try to cross all its T's and dot all its I's in theology, to know that even if we do that, Lord, to the, even though it's something you hold in high regard, we can't let that be the, the measure of our spiritual uh, health. It really comes down to the way we treat one another. And you modeled that to us on the cross by self-sacrificially laying your life down for us. So may we do that um, in relationship to you and others and make that the platform of, by which we mo- model and value Christianity. So again, we're the only uh, spiritual belief in the world that values love to this degree and understands love to this degree. So yeah, we look forward to further conversation as the time closes and um, for you to be part of our conversations going forward. In Christ's name, amen.